0: Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Lillian Mills is a remarkably accomplished accounting academician. As evidenced in part by being named the 2023 Outstanding Accounting Educator, awarded by the American Accounting Association. After spending periods of time both inside and outside of academia during her career, Lil joined the McComb School faculty at the University of Texas at Austin in 2009. In 2011, she was appointed Chair of the Accounting Department, a role she held for four years. However, like many institutions, COVID threw UT Austin an interesting curveball. In the spring of 2020, as COVID was blossoming across the world, turnover on campus leadership suddenly thrust McCombs' beloved dean at the time, Jay Hartzell, into the president's office. Promptly after that, Lil was named interim dean and in a few short weeks was in the role during a hectic period of time on campus. In this episode, we hear her perspective about the role of the interim dean and her approach to initially taking on this job. However, exactly one year later, Lil became the first woman to leave McCombs as its permanent dean, transition we hear about as well. Along the way, there are several nuggets of insight we learn in this episode, including how Lil grew in her leadership style over time and how her time as department chair informed her leadership we also pick up some useful tools on how to manage large, complex
1: organizations. Well, welcome, Lil Mills, Dean of the McCombs School of Business at University of Texas, Austin. Uh, we're just delighted to have the opportunity to speak with you here today.
2: Thanks, Ken. And thanks, Dave, Ike
1: You bet. So, um, I mean, you have the distinction of having been an interim dean and then being appointed to your first Dean role during the global pandemic, which is a uh, sure had its own set of challenges, and perhaps opportunities. And yet, we also know you've had a tremendous start to your role as Dean with um, success across a number of measures. And I'll also mention, by the way, the 2023 outstanding accounting educator by the American Accounting Association. So, you've had a chance to do a lot of things, juggle a lot of balls while uh, uh, earning uh, that distinction at the same time. So we were really hoping to hear from you about sort of the the startup of your Dean experience, sort of what you've learned and what what the secret sauce has been to helping with the success this year.
2: Well, thank you, Ken, for that uh, lead in. I I will say I have big shoes to fill and work at that every day. My boss is the immediate former dean of the Texas McCombs Business School, and in spring of 2020, shortly after all of us shut our campuses down in March of 2020, the president and provost of UT Austin announced they had been recruiting and had accepted jobs elsewhere. So in April of 2020, President Jay Hartzell was named as the interim president to start June 1st. And a few weeks later, UT called me and asked me to be the interim dean of the Texas McCombs Business School, also starting June 1st. We So Jay Hartzell and I each had about a month to be mentally and organizationally ready to take those new roles. One of the things that made it extra bumpy is I think we each thought all we had to do was open campus in a pandemic because we reside in a state that was going to get back to person as quickly as possible, But about five days before we took office, uh, George Floyd was killed by a Minnesota policeman. And that changed the nature of the summer of 2020. And it happened with a very long five days before we took over. So while uh, universities and businesses were responding with, Uh, commentary around that national event, we had a very long five days of silence at UT Austin. And so that also made the the parachuting in extra challenging. Mm. Uh, And I was really honored to be the dean in place on June 1st of 2020, because it was the job of how do you hold the heart of a university and a college in a fearful and turbulent time that summer. So I was glad to be the dean that that year. Now, I came in to only be the interim because there was some expectation that the regents would conduct a national presidential search and appoint someone else. And I was willing to serve as the interim dean who would happily and willingly give uh, interim dean president Hartzell his deanship back if he were uh, sent back. But the regents highly valued every skill he brought to Texas. And it was a time where stability and a known proven quantity was such an asset in place and so without a full national search, our regents appointed uh, Jay Hartzell as the permanent president in August of 2020, which meant the McComb School could breathe into conducting a national dean search for the next
1: six plus months. And we know that that left you in suspended animation for a, for a fair amount of time. Yes. While you assumed all the activities of a Dean, though serving as interim. Maybe you can talk about sort of what that interim period was like for you and sort of what mindset you brought to it.
2: Well, I knew that one of the large roles of a Dean is holding the heart of a college and its students, but also the heart and inspiration and then loyalty of the alumni base. And I likened it to the alumni were happily married to Jay and he had to leave them for someone else. And they were going to have a year to search for their next person to get married to. And I wanted them at the end of that year to have felt no loss of affection from the McComb school. So I went into it. They, said, you don't have to do fundraising. I considered that cheap talk. I didn't believe it for a second. And I leaned into the fundraising because accounting department chairs, which I used to be, do raise money independently as a department. And so I knew something about that. And it's the most fun part of the job. I love individual people I'm interested in their stories. The thing about fundraising is it's not transactional selling. You just ask people why they have affection for the college and let them talk long enough to see where their affection matches up with your need. And A decade ago, long before I became department chair, I had read this book, Fundraising for Nonprofits, and it talked about the arc of stewardship. So you spend a long time making friends and an even longer time thanking people for meaningful gifts. The actual fundraising is a very small moment in the middle of that very long arc. So, To get closer to your question, Ken, I don't know how to be halfway about anything. I am all in, even though I thought a year later I would be uh, turning the reins over to somebody else. Uh, But if I'm at the dance, I want to dance every dance. And so that's how I approach the year.
0: Well, At what point in that arc of those that first uh, semester did you uh, make that transition from uh, thinking and, and embracing the interim to pondering the full-time appointment, and did that change your uh, leadership uh, approach?
2: Well, I was raising tens of millions of dollars on Zoom and having fun and uh, occasionally in-person meetings. And... Alumni started saying, well, you're going to put your hat in the ring, aren't you? I said, well, that wasn't the deal that I was told. I I was told I'm not eligible. And without any, I didn't say it with any edge in my voice. And so they started texting and emailing other people at UT saying, "Uh, we're hearing this. Uh, Can't we unwind this? Uh And... And the other part, Ken was nice enough to mention this teaching award. There are, even, even in and especially in COVID, the skill of making people feel seen, whether they're remote or in person, is a critical skill. And I was discovering that I was able to, whether on Zoom or in person or on Teams, we are both a Zoom and a Microsoft Teams user here, connect with the internal people in the college as well. And I was joking with some of you, I was discovering I was a true extrovert who had accidentally trapped herself in a tax accounting scholar's career for 30 years. And I was great at that, but this was more fun. So I'd say by October, November, I was hopeful that I would be allowed to entertain applying for the job. Now, I'll tell you a funny story, which may or may not be podcast, uh, may not be relevant to everyone. But I went to my husband, who is a fully retired introverted physicist. And I said, I think I'm going to be allowed to apply. But if I don't, I can exit next year. And I am not a young, young woman. I could begin that glide path that professors sometimes exercise toward their, you know, in in their 60s toward their 70s. And I said to Jim, we could have more fun if I were at the office less And 24 hours later, he came back and said, Lil, you've terrified me. This 10 minutes we talk (laughs) at dinner and this 15 minutes a night that we work on Jigsaw Puzzle, uh, because this was COVID, remember. He said, that's all the fun I'm ever going to be. I am not going to be any funner if you retire and you're scaring me. So go Dean all you want. The dog and I will be here happy to see you when you're home for dinner. (laughs) And it was exactly what I needed to hear. So I am married to someone that when I'm home for dinner takes great care of me. And if I need to travel, uh, he and the introverted but very tail wagging Labrador retriever just completely supportive. So... (laughs) That was a key moment in, am I going to apply for the job? But you have to apply with your 100% spirit that you want it and you're going to be great while holding Mm -hmm. on to that little 10% of your heart. And Ken, you were part of my search team where I say people to people, if the college chooses someone else, I will give that person my fullest support because they are going to be exceptional in the job. And I have a lot of trust in the process. That if they picked somebody else, it would be someone better than what I would bring to
1: the table. And I do really recall that you navigated very carefully being uh, deliberate in your messaging, that you would support any outcome. hmm And and not competing for the job, but doing the job. Yes, and that Mm -hmm. was a that was a clear differentiation. You were never campaigning, right? You were doing.
2: I think campaigning would have been tacky, which is why Mm -hmm. lots Mm -hmm. of colleges are wary of having an interim be eligible for the permanent
1: job. Um, Yeah. 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 But it's an important distinction, and one you know we hope our you know listening audience also pays attention to because it was exemplary, the way you served as interim, and you know a number of um, uh, over fifty percent of uh, appointments come from within within the institution. Yes. and so there is a learning curve that you can show others away way on.
2: Well, I, I would be willing to, to do a reasonable amount of entertaining questions if people who are thinking about a deanship or they're in an interim role, if they wanted to email me, I, I've got some capacity to respond to some <laughs> of those questions. Although Dave Eikenberry and Jim Ellis can, can clearly Provide as sage advice, but happy to talk to colleagues.
0: At some point, you made this uh, mental transition from an interim to the the full time appointment. But you were that was happening probably right in the thick of COVID. Yes. What was your approach to leading the college forward? Was it like for I know I know for so many colleges, waking up in the morning and dealing with the day's crisis was about as as much as one could chew, but, but what was your approach? Did you, did you begin to set an agenda or did you wade through things or uh, take us through that time period? Well, the, the COVID part, I started June 1st. So
2: I think a lot of the crisis thinking had been already occurring in March, April, and May. Mm-hmm, so people right. were effectively at home and, I'll give you an example. We had a faculty member who was due to retire in early May, and he was into his late 60s or early 70s. He threw himself into our quickly convened online educational sessions around how to teach effectively on Zoom And he did that even though he was only going to be a professor for four more weeks. Hmm. Like, I think he could have told the department chair, replace me and pay somebody an overload. He did not say that. So beginning in July of 2020, that's when we bring our MBA students and master's students back. And we were in person in classrooms by late August with the undergrads. The the quick decisions the university was making had to do with how densely populated the classrooms could be. So uh, the decisions were rapidly made to take the largest classes, put them online and take the medium sized classes and offered them in person in the larger classrooms. The thing I am most proud of about my faculty, and this is the business school faculty at Texas McCombs, 70% of them said they would teach in person if asked. And we didn't have a vaccination available until February or March of 2021. And here I want to give a shout out to my science colleague, uh, Professor Jason McClelland, who discovered the spike protein that quickly got deployed into the COVID, into the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And yet Jason McClelland will say he has extended family members who would not get vaccinated. Hmm. So the scientist at UT Austin who made the vaccine possible. Uh, When I heard that from him at a speech, it gave me a little more of an understanding of what an uphill climb we had in store for us in this nation around trust in science. So we opened in person unvaccinated in a state where you're not allowed to require masks. And so um, it's a courageous business school faculty here. And I think part of what I did in a leadership function was be on campus every day starting that first August and be willing to take some personal risk for myself and keep channeling the optimism that it's a personal choice. I'm choosing to wear a mask in large crowds and And we're going to navigate this together. Uh, And I think it helped some. I also think business school faculty, they understand two things. They're better at risk assessment than the average faculty member without a business background. And so the data around, are you elderly or do you have a comorbidity, et cetera, they can assess those risks. And the second thing is we understand value propositions. Kids were enrolling students in Texas instead of other places because they have bought into uh, what we are willing to do here. So our customer base wanted residential education and and business school faculty need to step up and, and provide it. So anyway, I was really proud. So we, you know, UT set most of the, concrete policies. And for me, most of the leadership function was expressing the appreciation for faculty and staff that that show up to steward that mission.
1: What kind of messaging did you deploy? I mean, you know, Combs is a uniquely large yes. and, and more importantly, multiple programs across across multiple levels. So messaging must have been and must be important to you.
2: Well, I've got, it is large, which means there are multiple associate deans. The undergraduate program's 4,500 students. They have an associate dean, two assistant deans. The MBA program across all of our cities and uh, methods is 1,000 students. And the MS and Master of Professional Accounting, that's another 1,000 students. So I've got about 6,500 students plus the PhD students. And it means some of the messaging was decentralized. So we were having the 20-person leadership team meeting weekly that first summer, and then once every two weeks, and then once a month. Uh, so some of the messaging would happen through decentralized channels. But I and the academic senior associate dean and the administrative senior associate dean held town halls that summer so that there could be some live but mostly pre-submitted questions. It's a little hard with six or seven hundred employees to have the free-for-all of an open Zoom meeting town hall. So I think as I did more of those through the year, we would pre-announce it, ask for questions in advance, look for commonalities and make sure we did that in a fireside chat sort of a format.
0: Well now that we're I don't want to say we're on the backside of COVID because I actually think there's maybe a little bit of stirring going on right now. But but how has your strategic agenda shifted? I mean, um, how do, are what what are the what are the issues that uh, McCombs is is tackling uh, right now?
2: Well, I'll I'll start with all the upsides. Uh, we are in a city in a state that has double digit growth, and. Headquarters are moving to Texas. Venture capital money is moving here. High wealth individuals are moving here. Mm -hmm. It is an exciting ecosystem to have a business school. In many respects, there's nowhere else I would rather be a dean right now than in Austin, Texas. So, one of the advantages of that opportunity is we now have 900 entrepreneurship students from across campus as well as MBA venture fellows, as well as an MS in technology commercialization. And across all those platforms, whether you think the end result is entrepreneurship or intrapreneurship, where you still go work for a large company, but you get lots of opportunities to innovate, it's an exciting time with eager students back on campus, because we're in a decade where 18-year-olds believe they can invent something, deploy it, and commercialize it quickly and do well for themselves. So we're taking advantage of that here. The other thing that's a challenge nationally and somewhat in the state, but where we have some natural advantages is the whole sets of arguments around how does one think about diversity? And here it's great to be a business school because our mission to educate students to navigate a global workforce where you will need to be hosting Teams or Zoom, or I don't know if anyone still uses Skype, but meetings across time zones, cultures, ages, socioeconomic, and yes, racial and ethnic diversity puts us standing on solid ground about what we're doing with our people and in our classrooms because we're educating business leaders. The endowment of students at the undergraduate level here is highly diverse and that attracts employers. So the state legislator lecture, says ninety percent of our fall freshmen have to be Texans, and the top six percent of our graduating high school classes get to come to UT Austin. So we're thirty percent Hispanic and four or five percent Black in the business school, just by virtue of those state rules, and that means we're excellent and. Uh, You know, a wide set of well-to-do to to low-income. It's it's an exciting set of students we educate. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a challenge that I think is giving lots of Dean's pain, I am working to
1: navigate optimistically here. Are there challenges that you face around student outcomes related to their placement? I mean, if the demand is so high in Austin, what does that do to your ability to, uh, you know, create more diaspora in uh, in student placements?
2: Oh, so uh, my East Coast colleagues place lots of their MBA and undergraduate students in financial services in New York and up and down that corridor. My West Coast colleagues place a huge number of their firms in tech. Texas sends students at all levels to the East and West Coasts And in Texas, there's healthy investment banking and tech and consulting, but our placement industries are broader than a lot of the top 20 business colleges. And the upside of that is when there are huge Wall Street layoffs, it doesn't hurt us as badly. When there are huge California tech layoffs, doesn't hurt us as badly. So all of our students are getting jobs, we just warned them you might have two to three offers, not 10. Mm -hmm. So it's affecting how large is the choice set. But like I say, we've had double digit growth, not just in Austin, but in Fort Worth and Houston and San Antonio. So the local environment for job placement's very rich.
0: Lil, we're uh, we're gonna run out of time here pretty soon, but I I want to ask a closing question. Um, you had a a nice run as a department chair. Yes. Uh, in in your own institution, and now you've had several years, both in an interim and now a, a permanent role as dean. To the extent there's permanency in deanships, sure. <laughs> but um, what pearls of wisdom would you offer to? Uh, to those considering a deanship, coming out of a uh, out of a chair, what what pearls of wisdom would you pass along?
2: Oh, so some things about department chair transfer perfectly managing faculty who might not want to be managed, uh, experience with students. Uh, many department chairs get involved in fundraising. the The part I was less well equipped for was external politics. Mm-hmm department chairs aren't viewed as responsible for policies very much, so the emails that come to my inbox are from a white, often from the political tales, so that was new to me, but the main pearl of wisdom, and this is coming back to that Outstanding Educator Award, the thing I'm doing now that is increasing my satisfaction and helping the heart of the college is once a month, the 20 McCombs leaders report back into me what's happening in their unit. And in that is a space for them to give a little shout out to their staff members for jobs well done. And once a month, I get a research newsletter of everything that's gotten published. I take time and it's always a pleasure to contact the staff member that's doing something well, tell them why I'm proud of them, that they got a shout out to the whole leadership team and I copied the supervisor that put that in so that my... I I can't touch all 700 employees a month, but the people that are making this place shine, the dean sees them and I let their supervisor know that I see them. And with the faculty members, I click through to their research and I engage with them. Congrats on the publication. I've read the abstract. Uh, Tell me more about this aspect And whenever I can, I send the paper to an alum who works in that industry and say, here's something interesting and relevant that you might want to engage in our faculty. So the pleasure of the job is, uh, for me, one human being at a time. I know there are people who are dean, effective deans, they're introverts, and what they prefer is program development for me it's it's always a people development job even at huge scale that i'm
1: working what a what a great place to end you know on the topic of you know your generosity as a one-on-one leader it's really really great
0: i think it's been just a great great session we appreciate you carving out some time to to be with us today
1: Dave that was a a great conversation what were some of your takeaways
0: I agree it was interesting it was really interesting to hear her journey and how she kind of evolved over time and into her receptivity for this kind of leadership role she uh, self-confessed introvert in the accounting space and remarkably successful at that but then she over time, gravitates into this extroverted role as Dean, and moreover, she's she's not only an introvert in an ex, oftentimes extrovert-oriented job; she she's thriving at it, and you can just see that in her yeah. how she embraces everything she does, and and similar to some of our other interviewers, um, you can tell how important the humanity. Uh, of her relationships with whoever she's dealing with students, staff, faculty, donors. Um, even in yeah. even in the dynamic of the stressful environment these jobs present, she she's she still has that that uh, that value system that I think is so important to be an effective leader in terms of the managing human relationships.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, like others, you know, you see that her, you know, her generosity comes out of, you know, being really grateful and her, you know, you felt her her grace, yeah. yeah, which is really great quality. You know, interestingly, we sort of went off into the transition from in from, which, you know, I was involved in and watched, but I thought it was important to, to note because um, she really had to navigate very difficult landscape, not the least of which was, you know, her past president, I mean, her past uh, dean and now president was beloved in the role. And she was, you know, by some eyes sort of holding the place. And she just, you know, never campaigned. She just did the job and did it in a way that was also still true true to herself and very respectful of others great quality and yet you know she can make tough decisions and frankly you know sometimes the internal candidate who has established credibility and relationships can have a fast start
0: thank you for listening to this episode of dean's council this show is supported in part by corn ferry leaders in executive search dean's council was produced in boulder colorado by joel davis of analog digital arts For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.